Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us to encounter your Son, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, through the proclamation of your word. Amen. Amen. You may be One of the great joys for me in becoming a dad has been re-entering what is the strange world of children's literature. There's the, the beautiful prose of Charlotte's Web, the curious rhymes of Dr. Seuss, tales of friendship in Winnie the Pooh, and then there's the, the headache-inducing repetition of books such as Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? <laughs> I have to say many books go missing in our house, sl- <laughs> slipping into the garbage under the cover of darkness. <laughs> but a book that has recently captivated my attention is the beloved classic Where the Wild Things Are. I'm sure you are all familiar with it, in which a young, disobedient boy, Max, wreaks havoc on his mother and is consequently sent to bed without supper. There we see Max dreaming that he travels across the sea to where he's crowned king of the wild things. And there we see Max flexing his authority, sending the wild things to bed without their supper, And then Max, succumbing to loneliness and homesickness, snaps out of his dream and returns home to where his still-hot supper awaits him. I have to admit, I I struggle to see the reputation this book holds in the children's literature canon. But after reading it maybe 50 or 60 times, as seems to be the case with little children, I began to see Max as a figure of Adam and of us, rebelling against God, making mischief and acting out, abusing one another, tearing our world to pieces, then only to escape to our own imaginations in which we crown ourselves kings and queens of our self-made kingdoms, crowning ourselves kings and queens enforcing arbitrary rules, casting judgments on one another, wounding each other, building fragile empires of wealth and power, and holding the keys to who belongs and who stands outside. But the king we encounter this morning in Daniel 7 will have nothing of this. Here we encounter the king of all history, who does not let us dictate and wallow in our self-made kingdoms or in our delusions. He showers our towers of Babel and establishes rather his own eternal kingdom where all nations, peoples, and languages will serve him. So let us look closer at Daniel 7 this morning. In the beginning of chapter 7 in verse 1, we see before we get to our text this morning that Daniel makes it clear that this is a dream given to him by God. This dream that we see in verses 1 through 8 narrates four beasts and earthly kingdoms. The beasts represent these earthly kingdoms. 
verses 1 through 8 depict the violent, chaotic, and terrifying powers of these kingdoms. And we'll see today how Daniel 7 functions as an interpretive key within the broader scripture, especially within the New Testament, of how Jesus both understands himself and how other New Testament writers understood him to be the fulfillment of prophecy and the messianic heir to David's throne. And looking at this passage, I want us to pay particular attention to the brightness of God, the throne of fire, and the Son of Man. So looking at verse 9, we read, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So the first question we must ask today is, who is this Ancient of Days? The Christian tradition has commonly understood this and interpreted this to be God the Father seated upon his throne. This is clarified in our next verse in verse 10 when we see the thousands and thousands and the ten thousands and ten thousands who are standing before him worshiping. This indicating a multitude too great for human comprehension. We see the Ancient of Days, this phrase here symbolizing the eternal nature of our God. And though he appears human in this verse, This is an image because we know that God is without a body. Scripture often uses such language describing God with human characteristics, actions, or emotions. This figure of speech is used, for example, in Genesis 3 when we read of God walking in the garden. Or in Joshua 4 when we see the mighty hand of the Lord stretched out. The writers of Scripture use this language because God uses what we know. He uses clothing, hair, feet, and hands so that we might better understand who he is for us. Looking at the second part of verse 9, we see that his clothing is as white as snow, symbolizing the holiness of God. Whiteness, this, this bright purity of God, is a very big deal in Scripture, and it holds immense symbolic weight. This whiteness is so bright that Moses hid his face as God's glory passed, for we know that no one can see God and live. And this bright light of God is so bright that it it in fact prefigures the very transfiguration of Christ in which Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And we also see this verse echoing what we read in Isaiah 118 and the Lord's promise to forgive our sins. Though your skins are your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We see that the very clothes of our Father in this verse, the sheer brightness of God, foreshadow his extravagant mercy in Christ. Next, looking at the next sentence in verse 9, we see the fiery flames of his throne. Fire throughout Scripture symbolizes both the holiness and the judgment of our God. We see this in his appearance to Moses in the burning bush and his descent to meet Moses in fire at Mount Sinai. And within the broader narrative of Old Testament, we see God enacting his judgment with burning fire. In in just a few verses later, in verse 11, we see Daniel depicting the slaying of the beast, the judgment of this earthly kingdom. Um, And it's symbolized through the body being given over to burning fire in God's judgment. 
This throne of fire that we read in Daniel 7 anticipates the very cross of Christ in which all the sins of history are taken up into the body of our Savior. Holiness and judgment will converge, and we see that Christ our God is both the just and the justifier, the judge and the judged. And it is only in Christ and through this cross that's anticipated here in this verse where we will find hope in this final judgment. The throne of fire is transfigured into a throne of grace for those of us who are bound to Christ by faith. And now, skipping forward a few verses to looking at 13 through 14, we witness the climactic descent of one like a son of man to be presented to the ancient of days, God the Father. This one like a son of man is our king, Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God. We know this because Son of Man is precisely the term that Jesus uses throughout the entire New Testament to describe himself. And it is precisely the language that John uses in the book of Revelation to describe Jesus. When being questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest in Matthew, if he is Christ, the Son of God, Jesus responds, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright interprets this as Jesus answering Caiaphas saying, Yes, and you will see that I am right. And if you remember this scene in Matthew, Jesus' confession was not received lightly. The high priest Caiaphas fully understands the implications of Jesus' acceptance of this title. Jesus is identifying himself as the true king of Israel, the Messiah. Caiaphas tears his robes and cries blasphemy. And this, would, we will see in just a few verses later, is the last straw for the chief priests and the elders. They would then hand Jesus over to be delivered to Pilate. And this, we know, is, of course, for Jesus to fulfill his crossbound mission, to pay for the sins of the whole world. For as we read in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then, as I said, in Revelation, we see John using this language to describe Jesus. In Revelation 1 specifically, after describing Jesus as the one who has freed us from our sins and by his blood made us a kingdom, John picks up this very same language from Daniel 7 and describes Jesus as one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, we see how Daniel 7 serves as an interpretive key to understanding the New Testament and how this figurative language is used dynamically towards our triune God. This vision of the Father seated upon his holy throne of fire, clothed with mercy for the world, And of the Son's eternal kingdom is crafted into the very foundation of our hope in this broken world. This is the very reason we read from Revelation at All Saints Day just a few weeks ago and at funerals. We see it echoing this language in Daniel 7 of this heavenly vision, this heavenly reality of the Father upon his throne. And a multitude from all nations and languages worshiping Christ our King, the Lamb of God. And yet we live in the time between the times. 
between the first advent of Christ and of his second coming. Heaven is not yet. We still know the sting of death, the bitter disappointment of unmet hopes and expectations. We feel the feelings of loneliness and abandonment. And we feel the shame of our destructive and sometimes distorted desires. We can hardly turn on the TV or open a newspaper without seeing abuses of power. Many of our politicians are corrupt and scandal-ridden. We feel in ourselves that we have, we, we've become skeptical of our leaders, our bosses, our teachers, our pastors, and even our friends and families. We live in an anxious age, and we are deeply suspicious. We feel pressures to fortify our self-made kingdoms and seize control, to self-protect to the point of enclosing ourselves up in these isolating castles that we build. We distract and we amuse ourselves from our pain. And so it is gravely serious this morning that we remember the type of king that Jesus truly is. He is not a tyrant who abuses to get his way. He's not a paranoid politician trying to win re-election. He is not an antagonistic ideologue scrambling for a retweet or a spot on primetime cable news. He's not like our president, and he's not like our last president. He is not like you, and he's not like me. And this is good news. Jesus is instead a suffering king who loves you with all your regrets, all your anxieties, and in all your fears, and in all your darkness. And as Paul writes in Romans 8, that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, not height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. He loves your dysfunctional family, your atheist neighbor, your child who walked away from the church, and everyone who is far from God. He subjected himself to all earthly powers, emptying himself and becoming a servant. Offering himself upon the cross, becoming sin, so that we might be united to him in his death and in his resurrection, being reconciled to the Father. Jesus' coronation was not in, his, in the temple or in Caesar's palace, but upon this cross, between two thieves, with a crown of thorns fixed upon his head. On the cross, the fiery holiness of Jesus' life collides with the righteous judgment of God in the body of Jesus Christ. And through his blood, we have been brought near. We are no longer strangers, but sons and daughters of our King, fellow citizens of his eternal kingdom. So as we follow Jesus through the turbulence of our lives, through the sins of our institutions, our leaders, and our very own sins, we cling to his promises by faith that we are wholly justified and made righteous in Christ. And so it is in the face of the destructive darkness of our earthly kingdoms and in the darkness of our sins that we proclaim the kingdom of God. 
that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So I want to wrap up this morning with two short proposals in light of encountering our King in Daniel 7. First, that we abdicate our thrones, and second, that we bow down in worship. So first, let us abdicate our thrones. For those who were offended by my earlier criticism of where the wild things are, I now seek your forgiveness. I've evolved on how I see this story's conclusion. Rather than Max, this this disobedient boy king being rewarded for his wicked behavior, I now see it as a parable for all of us self-declared kings and queens of our self-made kingdoms. For author Maurice Sendak writes, Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. You see, Max knows better than us. These thrones and these crowns of ours are lonely. Not only are we not worthy of these crowns and these thrones, but the burden of them is too great for us to bear. We are not made to worship ourselves or one another, but rather the creator of all things. And if there is someone who loves us best of all, it is surely Jesus Christ. He will not leave us, and he will not forsake us. And to live under his rule comes the freedom to love those whom we despise, the freedom to repent to those whom we've wronged, because we don't have these artificial reputations to preserve, to give freely of our time and our resources, because we have nothing to boast but in his cross. The freedom to befriend those who don't look like you, who don't talk like you, or vote like you, because in his kingdom, there is no such boundaries. To live under his rule liberates us to take upon ourselves the easy yoke of Christ our King. For he is gentle and lowly in heart, and it is only there during the chaos and in the confusion of our lives that we will find true rest. So let us come this morning and abdicate our thrones and let us cast our lonely crowns before his throne, saying, Worthy are you, O God, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And secondly, let us bow down and worship our King. In the freedom of a Christian, Martin Luther binds the worship of our God to our trust in him. He writes, The very highest worship of God is this, that we ascribe to him truthfulness. When this is done, the soul consents to his will. Then it hollows his name and allows itself to be treated according to God's good pleasure for clinging to God's promises. It does not doubt that he who is true just, and wise, will do and provide all things well. So I encourage you today to worship God by trusting in his promises. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. To worship him by trusting in his promise to you in your baptism that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. 
to worship him by trusting that regardless of how you slip up, fail, lash out, or doubt his promises, to trust that Jesus has bought you with his blood, he has chosen you before the foundation of all the world, and that you are not your own, but belong both in body and in soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us abdicate our thrones and bow down in worship, trusting in his promises, holding tight to the spectacular vision we see in Daniel 7. I can think of no better way to close than to share from another children's story I read just this past week with my daughter, Margaret. We were reading from Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible. Very near the end of that book, she recounts John's vision in Revelation, in which thousands and thousands are gathering before our king. She writes, And the king says, Look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying, because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, Look, I am making everything new. Free at last, they took your